Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, Finn and I talk to Phil Trammell, who's a research associate at Oxford's Global Priorities Institute. Phil describes his work as at the intersection of economic theory and moral philosophy. If you're already familiar with effective altruism, then you might know Phil best for his work on patient philanthropy. And he's discussed this already at length on the 80,000 Hours podcast, which we highly recommend you check out. Instead, in our interview, Finn and I talked to Phil about his most recent working paper, which he wrote together with Anton Koronek about how transformative AI might affect economic growth. We touch on three different channels through which AI might have an effect. The first is about how AI can be generally seen as just an increase in technology. And we ask Phil about whether this is really enough to drastically change GDP or wages. The second is about how AI might change the substitutability between capital and labor. This sounds a bit wonky, but really what it is, is whenever you read in the news about how AI might take all our jobs and we'll all become unemployed because robots will replace us, that's really what substitutability means. And lastly, the third channel we talk about is how AI might itself change the way we make technological discoveries. Um, I think this is probably the most interesting part of our conversation, and Phil also believes that this might be what really has the most transformative consequences of all. Uh, Overall, we just examine a lot of different economic concepts, and whilst they're all kind of through the lens of artificial intelligence, I just also generally think that this is a really great introduction and gives you actually a really good impression of how macroeconomists tend to think about growth and how they end up building their models. That said, things do get a bit wonky at times, so if you ever feel lost or kind of confused, we recommend you check out Phil's paper, which kind of gives you a chance to see these things more step by step, uh, as well as our own write-up, where we have tried to explain some of these kind of core intuitions a bit more kind of informally. I should also say that we are currently recording episodes still remotely, so audio quality can fluctuate a bit, and admittedly this one was a bit on the rougher side at times. Um, We are doing our best to try and improve this, and hopefully we'll be back to doing some in-person interviews again very soon. But for now, here's the episode. Yeah, my name is Phil Trammell, and um, I am at Oxford, where I'm a research associate at GPI, which is a Global Priorities Institute, one of those um, pretentiously named EA uh, research organizations in Oxford. And at GPI, I do research on the long-run timing of philanthropy is sort of sort of become my main thing. And then to some extent, questions of long-run growth in general, um, including what AI might have to do with that. Um, and I am an econ grad student at Oxford. Awesome. Um, so out of interest, how did you come to study economics? And what was it within that that got you interested in this global priorities research? My route to economics is that so I started out at Brown thinking I might want to study philosophy, actually. And I didn't really have any clear sense, but that was seeming like the most likely thing. Because I was interested in the big normative questions, mainly. So ethics and decision theory and epistemology. But I quickly got the impression, right right or wrong, that the people doing the most interesting and precise and rigorous work um, in those areas were economists. So, you know, like social choice theory, sort of the econ version of ethics and and so on. That's what first drew me to it. I I was mainly interested in the most like abstract philosophy adjacent uh, corners of econ. But on the practical side, I also wanted to make money and get a better understanding of how the world worked. 
Um, in part so I could be a better philanthropist. I was sort of thinking along EA lines, even though I hadn't come across the EA community at that point. And um, yeah, econ obviously seemed way better than philosophy on those fronts too. So it was sort of a sort of a no brainer in the end. Offense taken. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I should have. <laughs> anyway, that's that's how I was thinking at the time. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, just so about how I came across EA and what people are now calling global priorities research. I just I, I came across EA online a few years ago and was pretty quickly sold because, like I said, I was already um, pretty sim sympathetic to at least like quasi utilitarian thoughts about how how we how we should live and um, kind of what at least some of the implications were of, of that, like earning to give and I, I was sort of thinking about global poverty mainly. But on reading some of Will McCaskill's work on moral uncertainty, I had an idea for a paper, which was pretty far from, you know, from, from the econ I'd done or anything I'd really been into before that, but it grabbed me and I, and I wrote a paper and sent it to this philosophy journal, Synthesa, however you say it. Um, and it got sent to Will and Toby Ord as referees. You know, I, I'm sure you both know, but in case any listeners don't, there are these, these two moral philosophers in Oxford who are like central figures in EA, right? And um, Will thought Toby might have written it, but really just had no idea. And then and Toby thought Will must have written it, but that it was too technical for Will. So he, maybe Hillary helped him. And uh, when I went to an EA Global and talked with Will about it and talked about some other things, um, he was impressed enough that he encouraged me to come to Oxford to help out with this new thing they were they were setting up at the time calling calling it VPI and um and I did that's so interesting that's so cool as well um that that both thought the other was the one who read that must uh must be quite quite the paper then what, what what was it about exactly yeah I wouldn't say it was you know so good that they each thought only the other was good <laughs> enough to write it was just niche enough yeah it's about the regress problem, as it's called, in normative uncertainty, where if um, you're not sure which moral theory is right or which decision theory is right or whatever, you might invoke some principle for figuring out what the right way to behave is in light of that uncertainty about the, about the like first order normative principle. But, you know, different philosophers propose different ways of dealing with this normative uncertainty. So maybe you should have uncertainty at that level as well. And then, you know, you invoke some principle to deal with that, but you can have uncertainty there. And some papers had said that this was um, just like a knockdown argument against the idea of taking normative uncertainty seriously, because, you know, if you did, then you would have to take it uncertain, you know, you have to take it seriously at all the orders of this hierarchy. And it's just a, you know, it's turtles on turtles. It's, you know, there's no, there's nothing, there's no action guiding. Um, norms at the end of the day. And I show that at least under some circumstances, you can have uncertainty at every order of this infinite hierarchy and yet still have some some answer at the end of the day as to like which action, all things considered, you should perform. So it's sort of a yeah technical um, exploration of what, what conditions you need for that kind of, that, for that to go through. And um, I think maybe um, one day, one person besides myself will uh, will read it. I'm not sure. Let's delve into uh, the topics you already mentioned. 
Um, one of which is perhaps the more econy one, which is uh, talking about how growth might be affected by uh, transformative AI, which is this this working paper uh, that came out last year. And um, I guess to like maybe set the scene a little bit is AI seems really pertinent and like very a very salient topic at the moment about how robots are going to replace our jobs. And there's going to be mass unemployment. Um, other articles were much more optimistic, talking about how this is going to be this huge revolution and going to unlock all of these benefits. And I think it would be really interesting to kind of delve into this and talk a bit more about how economists in particular understand this. So maybe to kind of kick us off there, can you set the scene a little bit more about how economists think about growth generally uh, in the long run and um, yeah, how, how that affects people as well? I guess it would be good to start with a crash course on just the basics of production, even even before you get to, to growth. And then once we have a grasp of, you know, at least how economists think about how production proceeds in a given in a given year or something, then you say, well, what has to change for production to grow over time? The basic ingredients in the standard economic model of, of production are capital and labor. The idea is we can think of we can think of the economy as sort of this big machine and every year it takes in, well, it takes in all sorts of ingredients, but we can partition them and call, we can call some of them capital, and we can call some of them labor, all the different kinds of human labor that gets done. It all goes into this machine and uh, it spits out a bunch of output. And then we use some of that output to make more production in the future. We, we, you know, we, we have the, we have the machines that out more factories and desks and screws and wrenches and all of that. Um, and we consume, we consume the rest of it. Okay. So at a time, capital and labor are each paid roughly their marginal product. So that's how much extra output gets produced by adding like one more worker to the system for an hour holding the amount of capital fixed, that'll be the going wage. And likewise, how much extra output gets produced by adding a bit of capital, that, that'll be like the interest rate you get by investing some capital. Finally, the last you know big fact to keep in mind is that capital and labor are complements. So each worker gets more done with a better desk or like better equipment in the factory and stuff. And obviously, desks and equipment are more useful when there are people to, to sit at them and, and work them. So when there's more capital per worker, wages are, wages are high and the interest rate is low. And when there's not much capital per worker, wages are low and the interest rate's high. Those are the ingredients we need, I think, to bear in mind before we even start thinking about growth. So just to, to clarify some points there. So is the idea here that I can expect a higher wage if I am working with tools and machinery and other kind of non-human useful things which help me make more stuff per hour and that stuff is capital that's exactly right yeah the stuff that you're working with is capital and then the stuff that you're producing could be used either as consumption or as future capital got it and then one more question is is there any way to increase the supply of labor without just increasing the number of people working <laughs> yes indeed so this is where growth comes in so yeah so remember that model i just sketched well as time goes on if we hold the number of workers basically fixed the capital piles up 
right? So the production machine is producing more output because there's more capital going in. So we get some growth in output per person and some growth in wages just by piling up the capital. But capital accumulation on its own can't sustain growth because labor is too important a part of the production process, right? So the idea is if you give, if you just keep the current technology the same, so like the whole, the way the factories are organized and everything, but just give everyone bigger and bigger desks, you know, give them standing desks, bigger computer screens, factories with plenty of elbow room. Um, as capital per worker goes to infinity like that, output just rises a bit. It just rises to an upper bound. So like that kind of makes sense intuitively. Like, I don't know, you can give people more and more elbow room in the factory, but like, it's not, you're not going to have infinite output just as, as elbow room goes to infinity. But in the developed world, we've seen exponential growth pretty, you know, on some, you know, when you zoom out, it's kind of remarkably steady exponential growth for hundreds of years now, basically since the Industrial Revolution. So what must be going on is we're not just piling up the capital, we're also somehow piling up the labor, right? Even though the, the population, I mean, it's increased a bit, but even like output per person has increased. So people are in some sense doing the work, like workers today are doing the work of two workers yesterday or, or, or four workers two generations ago. And so what we're doing over time is we're not just piling up the capital, we're also developing what economists would call labor augmenting technology. And the idea there is we're sort of figuring out ways to organize the factories and stuff or just organize systems of production so that people are doing different tasks than they used to and you know they're getting educated on how to perform these tasks and you know and, but all this ultimately allows one person to do in a day what it took his his parents like two people to do in a day so that's kind of how you get labor augmenting technology is how you in a sense grow the supply of of labor, of effective labor, as it's called, without having to actually have population growth. And that combination of things, the capital accumulation and the labor augmenting technology is ultimately what drives long-run growth. I think that gives a good background about how to generally think about these these growth models. And we'll include more stuff in the write-up as well, if listeners are a bit unclear about it or, or kind of want to see some, some nice graphs and stuff that that can help visualize it. But let's delve into some of the more AI specifics. And I guess it might be good to start off with the most simple way to think about AI, which is um, that it is just increasing technology, right? And this um, labor augmenting technology, um, you said that allows us to, to do more things per person. Um, can you generally talk about how that kind of fits into this growth model and what we might expect to happen to uh, wages or or growth in general? So if AI just constitutes labor augmenting technology, then it would constitute sort of the next stage in a process that's been ongoing for hundreds of years in uh, in the developed world, at least. And it shouldn't necessarily be expected to have any really transformative consequences. It would just be that, well, what it took to press on at two to three percent a year 50 years ago was we had to invent, you know, washing machines so that now a person just has to throw in some clothes and do some folding 
and gets the same output, clean clothes, um, that it used to take much more, you know, many more hours to uh, to perform. And now we'll likewise come up with methods of production that require even less uh, e even less hours of input per unit of output. But it's just uh, you know, well, if, if we didn't have this constant stream of new new technologies like that, then then growth would eventually plateau because the capital would just you know we just get saturated in capital, but labor would be the bottleneck. So it's it's possible that for some reason advances in AI could amount to increases in labor augmenting technology that are faster than those produced historically by things like washing machines. But I don't see any reason if, 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 that, if that's a category of thing it is, but it's just another labor augmenting technology. I don't really see why it would be particularly um, more or less impactful than any of the ones that have come before it. I don't know how directly this relates to AI, right? But you can hear a lot of economists kind of of this view um, where they're very skeptical of of any new inventions. I'm thinking about people like like Robert Gordon, right? Who kind of point out to, you know, this technology or, or TFP thing kind of falling, right? Since, since World War II and saying that, you know, inventions like the internet and smartphones and the like, which we feel are very transformative, don't really do much in the statistics at the moment, at least, um, other than kind of continuing a trend that has already happened. And if anything, not being as transformative as inventions like steam or, or coal or, you know, these, these really big changes um, when we think about things like the, the industrial revolution. Right. Uh, I think, I think that's a good point. So if you, if you take a really long view, at the growth rates of, of technology and, um, and and of output directly. The growth rates were increasing for most of human history in the sense that they were really, really low before the agricultural revolution and then a bit faster and then a bit faster again after the industrial revolution. So when you project that kind of trend forward, you can come to the conclusion that you know, the singularity is near or whatever. And so there are papers that have done projections like that. David Rudman at OpenPhil recently wrote, I think, the, the latest sort of example of, of this kind of um, projection. But looking more recently, actually, growth in the developed world has slowed down a bit. And Robert Gordon, author of this book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, is most uh, most associated with, with really making this observation. And yeah, making the case that likewise, technologies on the horizon are, are going to prove to be overhyped, just like in in his view, and I think reasonably so. Um, technologies of the past few decades turned out to be a bit overhyped, and the internet, as great as it is, made people a bit more productive. But people just kept on getting more productive at a few percent a year or so, and you know, it wasn't, it didn't like turn the world upside down any more than the washing machine did. Um, I think that that's a I mean, one thing we'll get into are some some of the hypotheses people have for why growth has slowed down a little bit to the extent that it has. I mean, it all just gets back to what AI will do to the the whole production process, the whole the whole model of production and growth that uh, I sort of sketched out above. If it just turns out to be another labor augmenting technology, like the internet probably is best best thought of as as being then I don't think it'll be radically transformative. But if it does something different, like 
allow capital to fully substitute for labor, say, so now you don't need humans and capital going into the factory. You can just have capital and more capital. You take some of that, that stuff coming out of the factory and you just make robots and put it right back in the factory. That really does change the model in, in a deep way. And um, then Gordon style predictions about the slowdown in labor augmenting technology growth, what you called TFP growth. It's sort of the same thing. Those sorts of projections wouldn't uh, wouldn't hold up because you really AI would just be kind of something of a different class. Mm. And TFP being total factor productivity, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, right. I was saying, you know, we could rearrange things so that people get more productive, right? You just, you don't, you don't need as many person hours to get a certain amount of output. To relieve the labor bottleneck, you need labor augmenting technology or labor productivity growth. That's the same thing. To relieve the capital bottleneck, you can either have capital augmenting technology or you could just pile up more capital, right? You kind of can't pile up more people and get more output per person. You get more output, but then you just have more mouths to feed. But you get growth in output per person with either, you need, you need those two ingredients, right? You need labor augmenting technology and then you need capital augmenting technology or just raw capital accumulation. And total factor productivity is technology that augments both of those factors, that is capital and labor. So the, the only necessary part of total factor productivity for growth is the labor productivity benefit, if that makes sense. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. That's really useful. Um, and since we're on the topic of definitions, could you also explain what you're meaning by AI, if you are being anything more specific than clever computers? <laughs> I don't have a precise definition of AI. And on some level, I... I sort of think that's for the best because at least it's for the best for interpreting the literature on the economics of AI, because it seems like what economists have done is to sort of say, well, here are basic models of production and growth. Let's just scratch our heads and think of all the ways in which we could, we could tweak them. We could shake them up a bit in light of how computers could start you know, behaving differently than they currently do. I don't think that I shouldn't, you know, try to speculate about what's in their heads, but I, by and large, I think they don't have precise ideas about exactly what sorts of technological advances count as AI. Um, they're really just papers about the extent to which, you know, capital can substitute for labor better and, and stuff like that. So I'm definitely not um, coming at this with some, you know, some background in machine learning or something where I have a clear threshold for what, what the line is between just, you know, advanced statistics running on big computers and something that's really qualified as AI. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One more precise term that gets bandied around is this term transformative AI. But if you're setting out to ask questions like, will AI end up being transformative in certain ways, then substituting AI with transformative AI makes that a pretty uninteresting question, right? Yeah, I mean, on the transformative front, that's where I do have precise definitions. On some level, you could just interpret this um, literature review on the economics or the, you know, on, on growth theory under transformative AI as being, I'm being a little glib, but it's sort of just like, well, um, how could growth be transformed, <laughs> right? And then just for, for almost any way you, you, you think to 
tweak these models, you can sort of have some story for how uh, AI was, was the thing that tweaked it. And what I mean by transformative is on the growth end, so when we're just thinking about output uh, or, or output per person, an effect is transformative if it does one of three things. If it increases the growth rate, okay, so instead of carrying on at 2 to 3% per year, we carry on at something noticeably faster than that. So maybe 8% a year or, I mean, any, any amount higher, so 50% even or whatever, that would, that would qualify as transformative. Um, if it's a so-called type 1 singularity, so that's if the growth rate itself increases without bound. If you're growing, you know, 3%, but then the year after that, it's 4%, and then 5%, and then 6%, and that goes up without bound. And the last is a type 2 singularity, and that's where growth carries on so quickly that output actually approaches a vertical asymptote. So this is the real singularity. This is like mathematically where the, the idea of an AI singularity comes from. And yeah, I mean, you chuckled a bit and um, all, as, as anyone can see, it's physically impossible for there to be infinite output in finite time. So that vertical asymptote, I meant with respect to time. So it's like, there's, you know, if you put time on the x-axis and output on the y-axis, there's some time before which you're you're going to surpass any any fixed amount of output, and yeah, that's that's totally physically impossible. But so is constant exponential growth. In fact, so is constant output with no growth. I mean, you know, the the universe will end at some point. So these are all these are all impossible. I think the interesting point is that these all seem like paths that the growth trajectory could resemble, at least until we start running into some constraints that these growth models haven't historically had to consider. So if the bottleneck ends up being that there just isn't enough, if it's like a natural resource constraint that's currently not very binding, like there's just not enough stone, you know, left in the <laughs> on the planet to, to, to do things, like no more, you know, time in the universe or something like if, if that's a constraint that breaks the curve then uh, that's that's sort of outside the model. But the point is that the the curve will will look like one of those three scenarios. And if it does, then I call it a, a transformative effect. Something that like occurs to my kind of very, you know, non-economist mind is isn't it sometimes difficult to compare output across times or across places? Like if my country at kind of time A is just making like making loaves of bread and olive oil and like cotton or something and then fast forwards to time b and like my country's now making computer games and other kinds of software and it's like how am i allowed to say that that is any amount more than what i was making at the first time assuming i stopped making bread and olive oil at time b and I guess that's relevant because you can imagine some longer term future where output is characterized by what would seem really foreign to us or maybe it doesn't even exist right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. The standard way of 
doing this over short time horizons is to ask when this new product gets introduced or improved, right? Because, you know, our bread is also maybe better in some ways than, uh, you know, at least some, some bread people had to deal with a long time ago and, and so on. Um, you just say, how much of the old kind of kind of bread um, would people be willing to give up for, for one of these for one of these new loaves? Or how much bread would people give up for for a computer game? And so it's like now we have you can you can sort of convert all of our output now into the, the units of consumption in, in the previous period. I think that makes sense over um, over short time horizons so that you can you can do this in a reasonable way. Um, but over the very long run, it does run into some big difficulties. So, for instance, it might be that there's actually no amount of the kinds of consumption that people had to make do with a long time ago that would bring someone up to the same utility level as consumption of the basket of goods that we have available today. Like now, maybe, you know, if it's just uh, bread and cotton to give up, you know, central heating and central plumbing, like you could just like dump all the cotton you want on my doorstep and I'm just not taking it if it means that I, you know, have to give up plumbing and plumbing and heating. So then you'd have to conclude that now, in some sense, we're we're infinitely rich uh, in the units of ancient Rome or whatever, and you don't want to say that. I mean, we're not we're not infinitely rich, and they weren't at zero. So I think this reveals that there are just some difficulties of with with doing these these sorts of long run comparisons, and people have different ways of getting around these issues. And it would, I mean, I think you know it would be a podcast of its own to go through all the methodologies people have of. Um, making these sorts of long-run comparisons, but I, I agree that it's not straightforward. And I guess it's worth saying as well that in the context that we're kind of talking about in this like very theoretical abstract growth model sense, then we're kind of treating output as this, you know, homogenous kind of blurry, just kind of thing, right? We're not really specifying what that output is. It's just output. And uh, I, I guess the, the models are more interested in yeah, in, in these more kind of abstract results rather than, than anything concrete we might be able to, to think about. Yeah, that's true by and large. I guess the, the one exception of the models that I explore in this survey is Nordhaus's 2015 paper in which he looks at potentially transformative implications of, of the fact that computers and like non-computer non inputs to production might produce different kinds of outputs, you know, so computers get you video games and stuff, but you can't eat them, you know, and bread, bread's never going to be as fun as a good video game. It's true that that's not been a central focus of the literature on um, the econ of AI. And I, I, I mean, this is still such a new field and there, there are still so many um, big questions about just like how to, how to best think about what AI will be and like, how it'll broadly speaking, you know, in broad brush strokes affect how growth proceeds, right? Thinking about these like good specific impacts on output seems sort of second order to me. But yeah, at some point it would be great for someone to do more research on that angle. 
Well, let's um, delve into some of those transformative effects then. You mentioned that if we're just thinking about AI as this labor augmenting technology, then we're not really going to get any of this. But as you mentioned in, in your literature review, there are uh, lots of people who have thought about some of these transformative effects. And one of the ones that seems to be getting a lot of attention is this idea of capital labor substitutability. So um, I guess to, to start us off here, could you briefly explain again what we are really talking about and how we might visualize this when it comes to AI of capital beginning to substitute labor and then also how this will then affect right these growth models and in particular uh, unemployment and, and wages? So as I was saying before, for growth to proceed as, it, as production currently has to unfold, you need two ingredients. You need capital to accumulate and you need labor augmenting technology because then basically you have an increase in both of these necessary inputs to the factory, if you will. If capital can start substituting for labor, then you don't need labor augmenting technology anymore. Lack of labor isn't a bottleneck to increasing production in the future. You can just put capital in both you know, both slots. And empirically, the bottleneck to, uh, to growth really does seem to be the lack of labor augmenting technology. It's not a lack of capital accumulation. So given how high the savings rate is, how much of, how much of their paychecks people save as opposed to consuming, what, you know, what we're collectively doing it's not just about individual saving governments also affect the aggregate savings rate in various ways but given all that if labor weren't a bottleneck and capital could just pile up and that would that would determine output growth growth would end up being maybe something like 20 percent a year don't don't quote me on that exact number but it would be like much higher than it is now and maybe something like 20 percent a year so just making capital fully able to substitute for labor would definitely have a transformative effect on the growth rate. Now, what that would do to wages is ambiguous. It depends on just how substitutable the capital is for labor. So if capital can fully substitute for labor, so there's, there's no sense in which having more capital around now makes labor more, more productive. Capital just it's just, you just make a robot. It just does exactly what the person did. And there's nothing for the person to do to help out the robot or for the robot to help out the person. They're just side by side, you know, competing applicants for the same job. Then the wage rate should end up being the, the capital rental rate. And that, that should be driven to how much it, how much it costs to, um, well, yeah, basically how much the capital costs. So if you can hire a robot, right? Well, you know, however much, whatever the rental rate is on robots, um, which is just sort of be like the amortized, you know, cost of producing a robot and, you know, the electricity and the, the maintenance and all of that, then why would you ever pay someone more than that? And that will presumably be lower than the wage eventually. I mean, you know, technology just makes, so this is capital <laughs> augmenting technology now, um, but it makes it makes it cheaper and cheaper to um, to produce computers and TVs and everything. Presumably, the same would hold true for robots. So, in that scenario, it's not doesn't look good for wages. Uh, on the bright side, though, in this sort of intermediate case, 
right? So intermediate between the, the current world where capital really just complements, like sort of mainly complements labor on the one hand, and the robots fully perfectly substitute for people scenario on the other hand, where wages fall. In this intermediate case, increasing the substitutability of capital for labor to that, to that middle zone can actually increase wages a lot. Um, and what's going on there is that growth now is no longer bottlenecked by labor. So growth proceeds at that 20% per year or whatever, because capital just piles up. That's, that's all you really need. But there's just enough complementarity between all this capital that's piling up and the humans that you have, that all that piling up capital pulls up wages as well. So that seems to be the range of scenarios there. To make sure I, I understand this right, so in this second case, this this optimistic case, I guess, is the reason why wages are going up that if you imagine if you have one human and that one human is going to make 100 robots more productive, then that having that one human is super valuable. So you're going to be willing to pay them a, a higher wage. Is is that what's what, what's going on? Yeah, that's that's a good way of thinking about it. You're going to be willing to pay them a higher wage when there are 100 robots than when there's only 50 because they're complementing a larger amount of, of capital. So, yeah. The big question now then is, right, which of these two scenarios we're, we're kind of heading to if, if AI does change this, the substitutability. And, you know, it might be very naive asking if we have an idea here, but it does seem plausible, right, that we could come to a stage where AI is able to do everything humans do or at, at least at some price, right? And then the question kind of almost becomes if it can do it cheaper than humans as well, right? And and that seems to be the uh, a pretty big threat. There was a paper I really enjoyed that that you referenced in in your working paper by by Hansen two thousand one, um, who talks about the robotic uh, cost threshold. Can can you mention that as well? On the story I just gave, the, the thing that has the thing that has transformative consequences is some technological breakthrough that allows capital to be substantially more substitutable for labor than it currently is. So right now, all we can do is make desks and factory you know, widgets and so on. But in the future, we'll be able to make these, you know, we'll make all this robotics and stuff, which substitutes for labor well enough that growth can proceed at this, um, at this higher rate. But we're not gonna be able to, to do that until we have the breakthrough in AI and, and robotics and so on. There's another possibility, though, which Hansen explores, which is, let's say we already knew how to make the perfect robot, but it costs like a billion dollars. No one's going to build robots now. They're just too expensive. So we're just going to keep on producing things with human workers, right? We're going to have our capital on the side. We're going to have our humans as well. And we're going to, that's how we're going to make our output. And to get growth, well, we're just gonna do what we've always done. We're going to pile up the capital, we'll develop better labor augmenting technology. And this process will keep on getting us growth at 2% a year or so. But that means we're getting richer and richer, right? So one day we'll be rich enough that it'll actually be worthwhile to start making lots of these billion dollar robots, right? Because at that, because you know we're all billionaires at that point. And after that point, we're in the regime where we get fast growth that 20% per year or whatever, because there, you know, once after then, it's just about the capital accumulation. So, you know, human wages probably fall after that. All the money that's being made goes to whoever is owning the robots, but you don't need a technological breakthrough. You just need to wait 
for people to get rich enough for it to be worthwhile um, substituting robots for uh, for humans. No, I, I find that like such an interesting idea as well, where you get this this very sudden shift, right? And where in some ways, you know, it's really great, right? Seeing your wages go up, but that also might be sowing the seeds of your destruction that as wages are going up, it's becoming more and more incentivized from the owner of firms to eventually replace you with this fully substitutable robot. And that seems to be, you know, a, a very scary scenario where initially we might be thinking that AI is great for society because it is helping to make workers more productive and increase their wages. But at some point, that very effect is is going to be the the very transformative thing that might hurt a lot of a lot of workers as well. So I have some top level questions about the effects of AI on work and the economy. And maybe a place to start is that if it turns out that capital ends up being really substitutable for labor under AI for whatever reason then the natural thought there is that you're going to get a whole lot of unemployment. You could even imagine like most people being unemployed. First, like very quick question is, am I allowed to, to draw that conclusion from what you've been talking about? What I said before was that if AI gets substitutable enough for, for human work, then you should expect wages to fall a lot, right? So they should fall to like, you know, the, the electricity of giving your robots running or something like that. And I didn't say anything about unemployment, but you can't survive on, on, on pennies a day or whatever. So realistically, I think that would just be a model in which it's not that humans and robots are working side by side, both getting paid the electricity cost of the robots. I think. It would just be that there would be a lot of unemployment. Yeah, you have a lot of actors and musicians, and everyone else is is out of work, unless you're a, um, I don't know, a tech person or something. That makes sense as yeah, as a kind of cartoon picture. And then the other obvious effect to mention, or potential effect, is a huge rise in inequality, um, because we're going to have some people. I'm like channeling my inner Marxist here, but you're going to have the the owners of capital who do very well. And then people who used to not own productive capital, but who used to be workers, for want of a better word, suddenly they're out of work because a machine is doing their job for a wage lower than they would reasonably take. Um, so these two things together, unemployment and like massive inequality, they have alarm bells attached to them. But I can imagine the models or like a kind of simple formal model that you might use in economics might end up passing over those potential like social or political dangers and harms from those two things. So I'm curious to hear you say a bit about whether that's true, whether I'm being unfairly harsh, whether the inequality worry is a real worry and then maybe later we can talk about any potential uh, fixes. Sure. So first off, the inequality worry is definitely a real worry and I don't think the models fail to deal with that per se. In fact, the central theme, if anything, of the literature on the economics of AI in general has been 
its likely impact on the distribution of wages. Okay, so that's different from something else which is considered, but not quite as much, which is the labor share, like what fraction of output gets paid out as wages as opposed to as capital rents, uh, you know, as interest on investments. Historically, for a long time, through you know a few hundred years in the developed world, another one of these surprising regularities, besides the growth rate being being about constant, is that the uh, labor share and capital share have been about constant. About two thirds of output gets paid out as wages, and about one third as capital rents. So th there's two ways that inequality could um, could be affected. One is by changing the labor share. And this is more of this kind of Marxist. Um, the concern maybe where you, you think, well, you, there's some people that own the capital and then different people are earning the wages. And so the primary thing determining inequality is what the labor share is as opposed to the capital share. Uh, but then there's also the question of the distribution of wages. And I guess to some extent, the distribution of returns on investment, though that's not as significant. And just because you can't cover everything in one go and the this document I wrote up is as long enough as it is, I just focus on the overall growth rate of output and the labor share, uh, well, and absolute wages. I, I don't flesh out the models in enough detail to have room for differences in wages across individuals, like low-skilled, high-skilled, you know, different industries, anything like that. But it is something that economists look at. Uh, it's just not something that I've, I've looked at. I think that something that you see kind of throughout these models is that if you do get transformative growth of any kind, so the, the increase in the growth rate or a type one or a type two uh, singularity, the labor share falls to zero or something very low. Okay, so instead of workers getting two thirds of all output collectively, they get approximately none of it. And this is true even in that middle substitutability scenario where I said, we get you know 20% growth a year or whatever, um, or even depending on the details of the scenario, you could even get a type one singularity there. So you get lots and lots of growth. And wages go up a lot, right? And wages might themselves exhibit a, a type one singularity. But even so, the labor share is falling, falling to zero in these scenarios. So there's a, there's a pretty deep tension there. And the tension is that whether the labor share stays constant is all about whether labor remains a bottleneck. If labor is still a bottleneck, then labor will still be getting most of the pie because that'll be what's sort of marginally productive in a sense. And once labor stops being a bottleneck, absolute wages could go up or down, but the labor share will, will, will fall. So that'll be a rise in inequality, but it could it could be a price worth paying if it means you know the wages go up a lot. To my mind though, there's no necessary connection between a fall in the labor share and a rise in inequality, right? There is in a in a sort of in a, in a world along the lines that you know Marx thought the world was, you know, and and which is to some extent like there's a sense in which it characterizes the real world, where you have which is totally disjoint, right? Where you have some people who just own capital and live off the rents, and you have some people that just just do work and don't own any capital. In reality, of course, most people do a bit of both. So there aren't many people who uh, just live off their capital rents, like they, they also work, you know, even people with big inheritances and so on. And workers have their retirement plans, which 
have, which own shares in companies. And so like, at least in the U, I don't know the numbers everywhere in the world, but in the US, a majority, I think it's just a slight majority, um, but a majority of uh, people above the age of 25 or something own share, own like either directly or indirectly, they own little slivers of all the, all the companies that'll be piling up the, piling up the capital income. So yeah, so there's no necessary connection there. I think it would just be good to ensure that ownership of these firms, which could become much more productive as technology advances, is more widely distributed. There's a whole range of, you know, policy avenues to um, getting to that goal. But then, you know, then people can can be unemployed, but that's fine because they're getting their, their dividend checks. To be, I'm curious to dip into that a little bit. So in this scenario where the wage share, the labor share goes down, um, which like you said, it's not necessarily you know linked to uh, inequality, but in practical terms probably is thinking ahead to that that future where we have these like unbelievably productive robots, but a lot of people out of work, a lot of people earning orders of magnitude more than other people. Yeah, what are the pol- the policy fixes that you find most interesting? Maybe the most obvious one is UBI, but is there anything beyond that? Yeah, UBI really does seem like a pretty straightforward answer. In a sense, it's just what happens if the government, you know, owns owns a share of the company that's make, making all the money off, off these advances in AI. Um, if it has the right to tax away, you know, a third of its profits each year or whatever, that's sort of just like someone, uh, someone owning a third of the company and having to having to receive a third of the dividends every year and then distributing it among among its citizens so there is some sense in which it might seem like an improvement on ubi to just directly have citizens own some fraction of the company in question right because you get all the benefits of ubi but it's also tradable so if someone just has some some extra need this year and the other person doesn't or whatever you could you could sell a little bit of your your right to the dividend stream that effectively you have from, from the UBI. In practice, I think that's risky because there'll always be someone who just like, you know, whatever the whatever the alcoholism is of the 23rd century that, you know, the, the really amazing drugs <laughs> tend people to sell there, whatever, I don't know. Yeah, it would be a shame if uh, someone, not just the person, but their whole lineage, right? All their, all their, all their descendants, um, we're totally broke because um, they took advantage of this right they had to cash out their ownership of that um, that fraction of of the the firms that are m- making all the money. Yeah, I think in practice, some combination of capital gains subsidies or whatever that would like make it make it easier for people to buy, uh, at least for some people, like for capital gains subsidies for 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 the poor or something, that would push in the direction of equalization of ownership on the one hand and then just flat out ubi on the other hand is probably going to be optimal so moving on from this question of substitutability one other way that economists have been thinking about how ai might be transformative is that ai is not just a technology but it can actually affect the rate of how future technologies get discovered so to kind of think about this ai we we've we've seen um being involved in i think protein folding uh, most recently, and that you know, discovery in of itself will boost the growth rate to you know, in this case, presumably 
a more trivial way, but we can definitely imagine in the future going forward how how this can have quite transformative uh, consequences. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is actually a channel through which AI could have even more transformative consequences than follow just from capital becoming more substitutable for labor. And so, so here's the idea. Here, this idea. Uh, no, you got um, so we talked about substitution, right? So there the thought was, you know, we don't need this labor augmenting technology anymore. Capital accumulation on its own can just take over, right? It can take over the, the process of driving growth. But hold on, where does this labor augmenting technology even come from? Like where, where has it been coming from over these, over these centuries, this two to 3% a year or whatever? Presumably it doesn't fall out of the sky. Somehow or other people, people make it, like people think up ways to reorganize the factory or something so that now a person can, uh, can do 2% more work than, than they were able to last year. And if AI can speed up that process, that's a whole, that's a whole new path to growth, right? And, and this is maybe it's becoming clear how this could get to a, a singularity because if AI systems are increasing labor augmenting technology, but robots are themselves doing the labor and getting more productive, well, now one thing they'll be even better at is coming up with further labor augmenting technology, like further robot augmenting technology, right? So you, you see how this could sort of spiral out of hand. This is the whole uh, recursive self-improvement idea just in the, in the language of economics. One of the ideas that I really like about this is that when you think about this, you know, endogenous growth, so to say, so trying to work out what factors actually affect growth itself, is that one really important relationship is how having more researchers or more resources dedicated to growth affects the growth rate, right? Oh, the, the, the growth rate of those ideas. So there's kind of two ways to think about it. On the one hand, you can think about how researchers complement each other. So if you have more researchers, there's more discussions and um, you're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, I think is, is the quote. And then there's this other idea, which is, you know, more negative, which is that um, when you have more researchers, they're actually duplicating work or kind of stepping on, on each other's toes a little bit. And AI might have a really important role here to play in, into how this kind of relationship uh, works. Can, can, you, can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So I think you might be getting two things a little bit mixed up there. There's two interesting variables to keep an eye on in an endogenous growth model, where an endogenous or a semi-endogenous growth model is one in where we actually model how you know where the labor augmenting technology comes from, right? Where you, you need researchers and stuff going. Okay, so the, the two variables to keep an eye on are first, um, what you refer to as stepping on toes versus um, versus complementarity, right? So at a given time, in a given year, if you have, you know, if you have, have 50,000 people working as uh, researchers, you know, from everything from basic scientists to people doing R&D in an applied setting or whatever, if you have 50,000 of them, do you create more or less than double the labor augmenting technology you would have made that year if you just had 25,000 of them, right? So that's stepping on toes versus complementary. But totally separately, there's this question of standing on giants, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants versus fishing out, okay? And the idea there is if 
the researchers working this year are working after a whole lot of other researchers have already piled up, a big, you know, a big mountain of, of ideas, right? We've got all, all the technologies that, that have been invented up to today. On the one hand, this makes it easier for researchers today to make further progress because we have access to the tools that our advisors didn't have access to. We have computers and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, it makes it harder to make further progress because there's less low-hanging fruit in terms of technological improvement to be had. Um, and that's that's fishing out. So I, I call that the research feedback parameter. So positive research feedback means as technology piles up, it gets easier to make further progress, but that effect wins out. And negative research feedback is that the fishing out effect or the low-hanging fruit effect wins out. Um, and that's just totally separate from the stepping on toes uh, side. With that in mind, so I was just talking about how AI could carry out a process of recursive self-improvement that gives you some sort of singularity where the people, the, the, the entities coming up with this labor augmenting technology are robots and that, you know, makes them more productive, but then they themselves are, are better at, you know, uh, further, further advances in labor augmenting technology and so on. Um, and all of this is true for human researchers as well, but it can, it can sort of proceed more quickly with robots in part because the robots themselves can accumulate uh, in a way that the people can't. So you, so at the same time, they're not just getting better labor augmenting technology, they're also like cranking out loads and loads of robots or lots and lots of AI computations on a chip in a way that we, we're we not really doing with when, when it comes to humans. I mean, to some extent, we're making it possible for the earth to support more people over time or something, but we're not really like, you know, there's no like Moore's law for humans where we're just jamming uh, in, you know, twice as many people every every 18 months or something. Um, what you need for this AI recursive self-improvement thing to produce a singularity is that you need positive research feedback. As a rule of thumb, I mean, the models, there's different ways of doing it, but kind of to avert the approximation, you need the shoulders of giants effect to outweigh the fishing out effect. And uh, we have no idea what, like, what these effects will be once we have AI that is as smart as like a human AI researcher and is flexible. But we can try to estimate research feedback in lots of other domains. So we can look at the extent to which it's gotten easier for people at Intel to develop better chips, you know, in light of the fact that they have the chips they've already developed to help them. And, and you know, compared to the fact that it's harder to make further progress because you've picked the low hanging fruit. And in lots of other domains, um, a paper that came out just last year, I think, or no, two, two years ago now, called Idea, Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find, um, does this sort of estimation, both for the economy as a whole and for lots of sort of subdomains and finds that um, sort of wherever you look, these research feedback numbers are substantially negative. And I think I think that's pretty intuitive once, once stated, because in principle, you could imagine research feedback 
taking place all over the place. But we don't even think to look in most places because it's so negative. Um, so brain surgeons could operate on their brains or on each other's brains and then become like smarter and better at doing brain surgery to make themselves even smarter, right? And like in principle, this could produce like infinitely smart brain surgeons uh, in, in a week, you know? Um, but it just doesn't because, well, <laughs> because research feedback exponents are negative. Uh, it just doesn't help that much to, it doesn't make you all that much smarter to, to do lots and lots of brain surgery on, on you. It's really worth underlining just how hard it is to get that positive feedback, right? Especially when you look at just the empirical facts, which I hadn't looked at until recently. But um, one surprising number, which embarrassingly I can't remember, is just how many researchers are working right now relative to all the researchers, roughly scientists, who have like lived in history. And that is like a pretty significant fraction what becomes clear there is just the, the rate of like scientific progress per person is lower than it it has been historically even though presumably individual researchers are just like far more effective than their predecessors think about how many scientists lived and worked during the like victorian period in britain and if you just like happen to be some kind of gentleman eccentric inventor you have like a decent shot at making like a really significant discovery and now um i don't i can't remember exactly how much like cern costs i know that the iter the new fusion reactor is going to cost more than 20 billion euros uh and you're pushing like in the case of theoretical physics at least the kind of narrative is right the story is unless there's some kind of breakthrough just waiting behind the curtain um, you're getting like massively diminishing returns. You're like throwing so much money at problems that you need. You like need international cooperation and governments putting up like a lot of taxpayer money to build these like huge machines. And you're making the kind of progress that, like I said, you could do if you happen to be a kind of lucky eccentric uh, scientist living kind of 200 years ago. Um, so yeah, it's like depressing. And it means that the whole like, feedback positive feedback idea in the case of ai there's like a pretty pretty tall bar to meet yeah i agree i think yeah for anyone who is still just maybe not 100 percent clear what we're talking about or like you know why we should expect this to, to to hold in the ai case i'll just give a quick quick illustration but um yeah i mean so yeah let's say you've got an ai system sitting on a table and it's gotten as good at AI development as a human AI developer, and it's working on improving itself. So it works away all year, it's tweaking its code, and by the end of the year, it's twice as smart as it was at the beginning. If being twice as smart means that it's more than twice as hard to make further progress, then next year, this AI won't make progress as quickly because it's twice as smart, but the problem's gotten more than twice as hard. And the, the AI can spend some of its time working on itself and some of its time in production. So cranking out more AI systems to, to set to work on the problem. But, uh, but it turns out if you have negative research feedback, then even when it's doing that splitting optimally so that you're getting more and more AIs, AIs working on the problem, 
AI progress will slow down unless you pour more and more investment in from the outside or something. So if the AI industry grows, then then you can sustain, you'll be able to sustain a lot of growth. But obviously that's that's got to run out if there's no source of growth, some other source of growth we haven't talked about. Um, so yeah, there, there won't be a growth explosion. And yeah, I think, I mean, again, we just have no idea how AI will unfold. And it's totally possible that, you know, something about research feedback is currently limited by like how many distinct thoughts the human skull can can you know hold in view at once or something and ai will allow for some big breakthrough in which research feedback turns positive but it would really be a big break from what we observe in basically every domain of potential recursive self-improvement and just to finish that thought just for my own sake the idea is that as ai improves in its capacity to make research discoveries it's also outrunning the corresponding increase in how difficult problems get. Like once you solve the low-hanging fruit, now you've got this kind of next batch of problems that gets harder, you're also better, and the rate at which you improve needs to be faster. And that's the kind of difficult, the tricky thing. The idea is not that humans are unable to get better at doing science or doing research because, or even just kind of get smarter because they can. And one thing I, I just kind of like want to throw in is just like the the Flynn effect seems like a kind of cool example here. And I was reading recently about the Flynn effect as applied to chess. And one like fascinating concrete example is that if you take a decent club player, so, you know, you should expect like a dozen or so of these people to like live in your city. If you live in a kind of like small, medium-sized city, there is a pretty good chance that they could have beaten the world champion in the early 20th century. Uh, which is a kind of cool, cool but mostly relevant fact. I guess the relevance is um, it's just all about what's driving the Flynn effect, and if it's just about some some obvious things like getting lead out of the pipes and so on, then even though we're smarter now, we're only a bit smarter. I mean, we're it's it's impressive how much smarter people are on average now than it seems they were a hundred years ago. But it's not like they're so much smarter that they'll come up with something as important as getting lead out of pipes. For making further advances in, in intelligence. So given that, you should expect the Flynn effect to slow down. And maybe we should say what the Flynn effect is for listeners who don't know. It's just this relationship that uh, scores on IQ tests seem to have been going up over time. It, like faster than, than could be accounted for by any sort of selection thing where more intelligent people have, have more children, which I don't even, my understanding is that that's not even true. But anyway, even if that were what was happening it wouldn't be enough to make the effect as big as it is and in fact my understanding is that the flynn, of, the flynn effect has been slowing down one thing i kind of want to add into the mix here as well is like one of the reasons i think i'm like personally a bit skeptical about this like air revolution kind of goes back to what we were talking about right at the start with questions of how impactful the internet has been because if you're thinking about you know this idea of you know duplicating work or uh, this like standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like there's this kind of like meta growth research thing, right? You could imagine the internet being super transformative in the sense that it just gives you access to so much of the existing stock of ideas. And, you know, it lets you check what has already been done. And you can imagine all of these ways that clearly has been um, really revolutionary to research. And yet if this in of itself hasn't, hasn't driven 
many more new ideas coming out to, to kind of match this increasing difficulty of problems. Does that raise like questions as well of like how much AI can do if, if the channel through which it is Im- impacting growth is this the same thing? Sure, it raises questions. So like I said, it is possible that the bottleneck wasn't how many re- how many ideas a researcher could get access to, but it was something more tightly connected to limitations of the human the human brain and and so if it's just like well you can only you can only have like five you know five research papers in your field division at any one time or something uh, if you had more than enough at the local library then the internet might mean that you can you know populate your life with somewhat more interesting ideas or thought-provoking ideas than you could before but um it's not going to have any dramatic effects, but uh, AIs could um, could could make much better use, and in fact, obviously, do make much better use of large amounts of data and facts and stuff than than, than humans ever do. So, maybe coupled with the internet, AI could allow both to proceed a lot faster, even if it's not a singularity, because you have negative research feedback. You could still just and yeah, there's a paper that looks at how AI could. Uh, accelerate growth in sort of precisely this way by like increasing the fraction of existing ideas that can be like used as inputs to the production of new ideas, new technology. I'm using ideas and technology sort of interchangeably, uh, which is sort of interesting, which you can link to if listeners are interested. So we've been talking right here about these like different possibilities of transformative growth. But as we mentioned in the intro, right, it has traditionally been really hard for these models to predict this kind of thing. And there's a lot of skepticism out there, right, of this kind of infinite growth and what kind of like implications this might have as well for society. What are your like your general thoughts on this about how economists should be thinking about it and if they're thinking about this in in the right way? I would say that it seems mistaken to me to write off these growth explosion scenarios as thoroughly as economists currently seem to be doing. Long run growth has accelerated. Um, if you take the long view, as I said before, it seems like we're already sort of in a in a type one singularity where the growth rate has has historically been increasing. And there's Michael Kramer and Robin Hansen and most recently David Rudman at OpenStill all, all have um, sort of empirical uh, papers lo- looking into looking into this, along with some thoughts about what might be driving it. Also, there's no deep theoretical reason why growth can't be much faster. Lots of processes in the world self-replicate at more than 2% a year. If you put like mold in a Petri dish, it'll it'll grow at more than 2% a year. And when you pick apart the ways in which AI could change how growth unfolds, there are a number of ways in which it seems like it could be transformative, as we discussed. So it could just substitute for labor really well, so that capital accumulation can drive growth and or it could drive research and um, and, and so increase productivity um, and that would that would be important for growth even if even if you don't get something super singularitarian with with positive research feedback I, I i think the main reason i could be there's some great arguments i don't know about but i think the main reason economists write it off is just because it would be such such a break from the past few centuries of observations in the developed world that it feels, you know, it feels a bit speculative and you don't, you know, it just doesn't really come to mind. 
as a plausible scenario. In fact, there's even the whole term stylized fact comes from this paper from the economist Nicholas Caldor, in which he came up with these sort of surprising regularities that, uh, that we've discussed about the growth rate being roughly constant over time and the labor share being roughly constant over time and so on. Uh, so economists generally constrain their models to uh, not deviate from those facts too starkly. Just to be a little more precise about that, economists do, do sometimes make very long-run growth predictions. You know, they like to make a judgment about what the carbon tax should be, right? How, how bad it would be if climate change destroyed a lot of wealth in 100 years. They need to make some guesses about how rich we'll be in, in 100 years. And people disagree a lot about how to do these sorts of projections, but basically no one ever argues for a substantial growth rate increase, let alone a type one or type two growth singularity. And I, I think that's, I think it's most likely that there won't be one, at least not within a hundred years. I do think eventually, if you just give it long enough, I, I'd be surprised if we came up with no way to make capital, you know, that, that could do everything a, a human can do. It's, it seems like in principle, you should be able to make a good enough robot. But I, I definitely don't have any sense that, you know, the singularity is coming in 2036 or anything like that. But still, I, I don't know. I, I don't really know why economists just, just don't, don't have this more on their radi radar as, you know, on, on the list of possible, possible scenarios. It's just sort of like, will growth keep on at the current rate or will it slow down a little? It seems to be the two main options that they consider. On, on that point of, of stylized facts, and definitely correct me here if I'm if I'm wrong, but it seems to be a bit of a question as well of like what kind of timescale you're looking at where a lot of like economic literature and, and this kind of like question of, of time series and stuff really starts with the industrial revolution where in many ways kind of economic history begins. But like if, if you kind of look um, before that, then it does look like these explosions can happen, right? Before the industrial revolution, you didn't have two or 3% growth, right? You had, uh, you know, almost stagnant or even declining economies for, for longer periods of time. And I think it, it might, you know, lead to a bigger question as well of whether this two to 3% isn't just because our timescale isn't long enough, where we're kind of trapped in this, you know, industrial revolution kind of paradigm, just waiting for the, the next big revolution to come. Yeah, that seems right. I, I will say some of these projections that are, I mean, even the people making them, of course, would agree that they're tentative, but when used to come up with what the optimal carbon tax is or whatever, they are predicated on, on projections out centuries. So given that there was a transformative growth event a few hundred years ago, at that point, you really are thinking on, on a scale where you should open yourself up to the possibility of, of another one. I guess. But that's very rare. I mean, there are very, very few people who are working on growth projections on that kind of time scale. So I think by large, yeah, it's just like they're just thinking about the next the next few years or, or decades or something. And on that basis, it seems most sensible to project off the, the past few hundred years. Can you pin that down a little bit more that what you just mentioned there with the, with the carbon tax as well, why these like growth explosions are relevant for that type of policy and, and those types of like social impacts as well? If you knew for sure that we would all be, we'd all be billionaires with amazing technology and it, it would cost us half a day's income to build um, levees around all of, you know, all of Florida and everything, you know, in 
60 years or 100 years or, or whenever climate change will start to have its most severe impact, then there's no point doing much about it now because we'll just be rich anyway. The, the AI produced wealth can just uh, solve all our problems at the time. So even if you don't think that's going to happen, it's, you know, if you're going to try to construct a distribution of possible growth, growth paths um, and figure out how much we should sacrifice now in light of the expected costs of climate change uh, or the expected welfare costs, you need to think about the whole distribution. And um, I mean, I guess in this case, it's not so important to leave out the positive tail of that distribution because it's it's more just about insurance in case of the the, the negative tail. But yeah, I mean, for all kinds of decisions like that, you you want to have some kind of distribution of possible possible growth rates for the next um, the next century or whatever. And I think climate change is the one that's most most salient. Like like most of the economists thinking about long wind growth, they're thinking about it in the context of. Uh, environmental economics but it's just not a lot of it's not not a ton of people they they don't really take uh the possibility of um of a big growth rate increase very seriously also actually we know that it's not just that they leave off the positive end of the distribution because it's less important we know because there's surveys um one survey of economists who who do this long run environmental econ stuff and environmental scientists asked some questions about um, what they thought growth would be like. But the, the, the questions didn't even allow for the possibility. So even the people writing the survey didn't think to say, so the, the questions were like, um, by what date do you think the growth rate will have fallen below you know, 1% a year? Yes, yeah, so something I was wondering is what you have to say about this um, crowd of economists and beyond who go under this kind of degrowth umbrella where their mantra is well on one hand an expectation that growth um just must level off at some point and on the other hand a kind of normative claim that that is a good thing and that maybe we should get busy making that happen sooner because you know what growth means is like more consumerism, it means wrecking the environment, it means like making more shit that we don't need. What we need to do is like pull back, tighten our, our belts and live within our means if we care about making the long run future go better and passing on a kind of healthy planet to our predecessors. We haven't really discussed whether growth is a good thing, although my guess is that the assumption here is that it is all else being equal. So I'm just curious what your reaction to this kind of degrowth crowd uh, is. There seem to be a lot of um, motivations for degrowth put together there, at least in, in, in the presentation you, you, um, that, that you just gave. And, and so I'd say some parts of it make more sense to me than others. I don't think consumerism per se is is bad like if it's really all else equal and it's just about people having more having more knickknacks it's not i don't see the word as as stigmatizing um but 
the um, possibility that what looks like growth now is is always just going to be unsustainable because it it just means sort of depleting natural resources and so on and and the sooner we realize that and slow down and kind of work toward a sustainable plateau of global consumption the better that possibility uh seems more reasonable right you don't want to grow unsustainably and then collapse okay so just to go back to the original story about growth i only mentioned two two inputs to the big machine i mentioned labor and capital if we'd been speaking a few hundred years ago but if i'd known if i'd known more economics than, than anyone knew at the time i would have probably mentioned labor and land or maybe labor land and capital and now land is kind of an insignificant input to production and so i can just sort of like hand wave and call it a kind of capital and natural resources as well they're just a very small in a sense they're a very small contribution to production now what do i mean by that obviously they're necessary right if there were just no land <laughs> then where you know we'd all we'd all just be in space i don't know we wouldn't make anything um and if there were no natural resources you couldn't ultimately produce any of the any of the, the inputs to to the factories and so on but they're insignificant in the sense that the marginal contribution of these uh inputs is low enough um that they get paid a small share of output okay so so every year the big machine <laughs> the, the economy produces a bunch of output i was saying something like a third of it gets paid out as capital rent something like two-thirds gets paid out as wages a few percent gets paid out as land rents or you know the cost of natural resources and so on and it's so low because we have enough land and natural resources that if you just having one more acre of land just if the whole globe of the earth you know <laughs> expanded a little bit and we had a, we had just an acre out of nowhere or if we had a, a bit more natural resources that wouldn't really increase output much output is basically bottlenecked by labor and capital and so th th they're the ones that get all the payment and labor in particular is, is the bottleneck whereas back in the day even though there were fewer people and less capital we were just so much less efficient at using land that the landlords got a higher fraction of total output just just for uh, just for renting out the land and starting from that point without you know without any advances in technology an extra acre of land would have been would have been more valuable. Um, so as time has gone on, su surprisingly, we've gotten more efficient at using the land and natural resources that we have by and large uh, than we've been running out of them. And I agree that this couldn't this couldn't proceed literally forever. So I like I don't think there's any like deep philosophical disagreement about whether ultimately growth has to slow I, I guess this sort of brings the whole conversation full circle but none of these growth paths are truly sustainable not exponential no singularity but not exponential growth either but also not plateaued growth at some you know club of rome um ideal scenario i mean what whatever it is a billion people consuming 1950s level consumption for, you know the, the sun expands and the earth dries out like that'll still be that'll still be a limit to, to growth so this question is just about which are the most binding constraints and which will bite first 
and I'm, I'm no expert on uh, natural resource usage and, and forecasting when will when certain constraints will, will will start to crunch but my understanding is that the consensus is that we can probably sustain a lot more growth there's no kind of reason to think that uh one of the you know constraints on that front are looming um so i would say yeah i mean at the moment i would just sort of take the take the evidence of the of the factor shares at face value and say labor is the main constraint and if we could just create AI that could substitute for labor, we would have a lot more growth for a long time. Obviously, this gets sort of into space element too, because one downside to this plateauing off is that it means, yeah, maybe you get a long, a long future on Earth for sure, but you never reach the level of technological advancement that might have let you settle space. And then there too, eventually you'd have a, a resource constraint, but it would be much, you know, you could figure out ways to use all the all the stars that would be a um you'd have significantly relaxed that, that that particular constraint and maybe that's not feasible but we'll just never find out unless we really go for it and try to grow and and whether that's a a project worth embarking on a risk worth taking i guess depends on your priors about how long we would survive that is an entirely different podcast episode <laughs> i look forward to doing it at some point um, let's let's ask some final questions then that we ask everyone. And the first one is, uh, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? I guess I've changed my mind to some extent about the value of working in government or working to change government relative to just doing philanthropy. So what I had thought was the following. So I thought, well, in the US at least, about two and a half percent of output every year of the national income is allocated philanthropically. And like 38%, like 15 times that is allocated politically. The US is sort of an unfair example because the US both has less government spending and more philanthropy than most of the developed world, but it's also a big part of the developed world. So that's like 15 to one. And way more than 15 times more effort goes into lobbying government and writing angry articles and tweets and everything about what some what some policymaker has done than go into uh, lobbying philanthropists or just trying to inform philanthropists who want advice on how, how to do good. And on top of that, I think there's just a, a substantial share of philanthropy especially these days, is coming from these sort of technocratic, you know, often like Silicon Valley billionaire types who are really open to ideas that people have, you know, kind of novel and sincere ideas about, about how, to, how to achieve impact. And to some extent, there are, there are also technocratic types and money that's open to being advised on, you know, in a, in a sort of socially useful way in, in government. But I, I think um, it's sort of a harder thing to measure, but I, I think some, on some ways, at least, of, of trying to measure it, you would come to the conclusion that there's just much less, um, a much smaller share of public spending is sort of technocratic in the relevant sense than, than philanthropic spending. And finally, um, all of this would be a strong argument for doing philanthropy as opposed to 
policy making or, or policy advising. Even if we were just answering this question from first principles and didn't know like our place in the world. But as a matter of fact, I, we, I said, you know, I, I can just speak for myself, but we actually are philanthropists to some extent. I mean, we're, I, I don't know if you donate money anywhere, but like, it's, I don't know, something I do. I don't think a lot of people do. And being part of the EA community, I'm in touch with a lot of people who are philanthropists of some size or another. Uh, and I don't know any policymakers. I don't, I can't just like call up a policy, like, you know, so it just seemed overdetermined to me. It seemed like clearly there's, there's this like giant low hanging fruit of working in philanthropy instead of, uh, instead of policymaking. Um, but two things, right? So first, as many people pointed out to me, and as I sort of have slowly come to realize is a giant, a giant consideration. It's really not just about the amount of money. It's about what you can do with it. Uh, governments, maybe the main thing they do isn't just shuffle money around. It's changing regulations and so on, um, including some that are very philanthropy relevant, including about like disbursement requirements, like how how quickly foundations have to spend down their money and stuff, which I happen to think is like a really important type of regulation. There's there's that, and it's sort of sunk in that that's really important, and then. Also, maybe more importantly, I think unless you're working through government, it's just much harder to know what you're even doing when you spend money on a public good. So we've been talking about AI. As a philanthropist, you might want to top up the incomes of the of the very poor who are who are disemployed by AI, or you might want to fund AI safety. We haven't even talked about that whole side of it, but you might want to hire someone at FHI to, to do AI safety or something. For every dollar you spend on that UBI program or that AI safety program or whatever, you could just have some other actor, the government or some other philanthropist or something, who just spends less on that and spends more on some other thing, right? Google could just say, "You've hired one new AI safety person at FHI. I'm just we're we're just that's covered now. We're not going to hire one." So unless you know the whole general equilibrium consequences of your contribution to a given public good as a private actor, you kind of just don't know what you're doing. And um, you can try to work that out. And I think it would be valuable to do more research uh, along those lines for, for doing philanthropy better. But um, a real bright side to working through government is like, well, hey, if you just increase subsidies for, for giving to the poor or for AI safety or whatever it is, um, or, or have like a, a, a UBI that's really just universal, you know, if you just have a policy like that, then you can like systematically skew the incentives and or the allocations in, in a way that like where you know kind of what outcome you're getting. And I think there might there might just be a lot of value to that. So I, on the whole, I, I think they probably these arguments probably don't mean that EA should all stop thinking about philanthropy and just try to work in government or something. But uh, I'm definitely I've been pushed more in that direction by them. All right. Last question then is uh, what three books or films, articles, whatever else, would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out more about uh, what we've talked about? Yeah, so first, uh, I'd recommend checking out that paper from Nordhaus I mentioned on what happens when the substitutability between the substitutability of, of capital for labor rises to that middle case where it's high enough 
that you don't need labor for production anymore. Um, so output's not bottlenecked by labor and you can get dramatic growth increase. But it's not so high that everyone's out of a job and unemployed. In fact, in this happy middle ground, all this capital that piles up actually increases wages. Uh, I think it's a nice kind of uh, easy to understand introduction to um, at least one, one path AI might take. Um, but better yet, it also has a bunch of empirical tests of whether we seem to be moving in that direction of capital becoming more um, substitutable for labor in, in the relevant way. A second would be another paper we mentioned on that feedback exponent um, seeming to be negative. So this is our ideas getting harder to find by Webb et al. Just because it's such a, a central, um, yeah, just a central input to this second channel through which AI could be transformative, and it's it's uh, it's also one of the few relevant papers in in this whole area um, that uh, that actually figures out a way to bring data to bear on this on on this sort of question. So, for its empiricism, I would recommend that one alongside the Nordhaus one. And finally, I'll say uh, it would be a great it would be great if there were a textbook on the econ of AI. I could just point people to that. But at the moment, there isn't. And the summary literature out there, other than the document we've been talking about, is mostly focused on relatively short-term issues rather than the long-term growth-related issues, you know, more about wage distribution rather than things like changing the growth rate. But if anyone wants an introduction to growth in general, can't really do better than Baron Asimoglu's Introduction to Modern Economic Growth, if they've got any economic students uh, listening. Yeah, I've uh, found it quite accessible and helpful for um, understanding just sort of what the range of plausible growth models is and how one might most naturally tweak them one way or another to to allow for for some some effect transformative or otherwise upon you know adding adding ai to the picture fantastic that's a great list philip trammell thank you very much thank you that was phil trammell on the economic growth under transformative ai as always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Phil. There you'll find links to all the papers and books we referenced throughout the interview, plus a whole lot more. If you enjoyed the episode, you might also like our very first episode with Victoria Bateman about the Industrial Revolution. We'll also hopefully do some more episodes about AI explicitly in the near future, so keep an eye out for that. We'd be very grateful if you could also leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous form, or you can get in touch by emailing us directly at feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you want to support the show more directly and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>